Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you, 403-974-8255. So uh, on Wednesday... Uh, a new U.S. president will be inaugurated. Uh, Joe Biden won the election. will be the next president and will get down to business when it comes to implementing policy. Now, one of the issues he campaigned on, or obviously he was vice president uh, when Barack Obama said no to Keystone XL. And Joe Biden said, I will also say no to Keystone XL. I'll revoke that presidential permit. So, I mean, he, he told us in advance. Uh, I think there was still some hope maybe that we could work something out. Maybe uh, some kind of a compromise, maybe some sort of a, a climate partnership. And I, I think certainly Justin Trudeau um, at least conveyed the, uh, uh, the idea that, you know, he could be the one to get through to Joe Biden. But if reports are to be, uh, be believed from the last couple of days, maybe those uh, efforts haven't worked. And that uh, one of the first orders of business on Wednesday will be to revoke that permit. So what does that mean then for Canada-U.S. relations? What does it mean for the project itself? What does it mean for Alberta, the oil sands, uh, and uh, future development and uh, transport needs? A lot of big questions that this raises. Joining us to delve into all of this is uh, Dennis McConaughey. Uh, he's a uh, former executive with uh, TC Energy. He's written a couple of books about the uh, pipeline debate uh, in Canada, including his most recent called Breakdown, the Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's future, much more at his website, Dialogues on Canadian Energy, doce.ca. Dennis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. So given what uh, the president campaigned on, but also given the conversations that have apparently taken place between uh, Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, how, how surprised would you be if that permit is revoked on Wednesday? Well, I have consistently said that I would not be surprised that Biden was... Um, committed to this um, um, revocation, rescinding of the permit. Uh, And I I always held to that view simply because um, this was an action that Biden can take, can take very early in his uh, tenure as president and prove to, you know, his environmental base, his environmental donors that he is, uh, you know, serious about dealing with climate change. Right. Um, and it's a simple gesture. I mean, he goes and <laughs> takes away the permit. Lawyers are going to fight about whether he has the legal right to do it, the legal right to do it without compensation. All that's going to get fought out. But it's something that he can do, given that he has many future trade-offs to do uh, with his progressive wing, like how, how extreme is his climate legislation going to be able to do, what's he going to do about transforming American health care, how much money is he ultimately going to spend in transforming the United States? This was an easy, quote, win to gain bona fides with his progressive base, and it was almost like irresistible. None of that makes it, in my judgment, fair or defensible vis-a-vis Canada. Right. And if I would make one point of emphasis to the listeners, Rob, I mean, when Barack Obama did not give Canada a permit, did not give TransCanada pipelines in 2015 a permit. That was at least his prerogative, his undisputed prerogative, to not uh, give the permit. Um, And even though that TransCanada of the day still sued the Obama administration for some level of damages, in this case, it was much more audacious. TransCanada TC Energies has a legitimate permit, one that was... uh, issued by Donald Trump twice, one that was revalidated by a new environmental assessment, and he is taking that away. So it is a real breach of how one country treats another, that when you invest in their country, 
which is what's really happening with KXL. Canada is investing in the United States and on the reliance of issued permits. Uh, and even when your political opponent has issued them and has uh, due process has been applied, you're going to revoke them. I mean, that is a very audacious thing to to do, and I think a very uh, regrettable thing to do vis-a-vis Canada. And the consequences are very, you know, difficult for Alberta. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There, there are, I, I think, there's some specific wording as it pertains to the to the presidential permit, and and it also would apply to what the realities on the ground actually are. So it could be a kind of a nuanced legal question, but uh, I guess essentially, Dennis, does does the president have the right to revoke this permit, and that's that? Well, um, uh, the answer to that question is going to be legally resolved. There's no question he's got the right to revoke it uh, because he's going to do it in real time. I think what he what is not clear is whether he's going to have to pay damages. And I suspect that even American courts in this context will um, have some sympathy for that. Uh, beyond that, I'm not going to speculate on the precise legalities, but that is going to get played out because the dollars at stake are so consequential um, to, to Alberta just to get recovery of the costs and to TC Energy and its other shippers and partners. But if you think about the lost uh, economic value to Alberta, you know, that's a claim even much higher than the uh, numbers of, you know, $1 to $2 billion if they actually go ahead to um, assert that there's a more profound value being lost here, which is really the extra barrels that would have been shipped at a higher margin over the next 20 or 30 years. You alluded to this earlier, why this became such a symbol in the debate in the United States, that, you know, it's an easy way for Joe Biden to show his his street cred on this issue in a way, yes. because it became such a powerful symbol. I think unfairly so. I mean, look, U.S. demand for fossil fuels doesn't change if Keystone XL is canceled. There are other ways, obviously, Canada can export to the U.S., but why, why did this become such a flashpoint? Well, it's a great point that you made, Rob. Like, the, the American demand for heavy oil is not stopping. This is still going to be importing heavy oil that's equivalent to Canadian, uh, you know, bitumen from Venezuela or Mexico or making some of it themselves. What was unique about this situation was that, you know, the Alberta oil sands resource is one of the world's highest carbon-intensive sources of crude oil which is a fancy way of saying that you have to put a great deal of energy, uh, typically to make steam, in order to produce the oil. And consequently, of all the sources of crude oil, this was the source that had more emissions per unit of, of, of petroleum produced. Now, not in any material way more than uh, any other heavy oil producers, but it was still you know, notable. Plus, the fact that the president of the United States had to issue a permit. So in the Obama years, it became like, if we can't stop this pipeline, which is going to increase at great efficiency exports of Alberta oil, bitumen, to the United States, when are we ever going to like assert ourselves on this? And for the American environmental movement, and especially the American environmental donor class, this became... Like, like a virtual demand of any Democratic politician. And, and that hasn't changed. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what this means for Alberta, there's, I think there's no way to sugarcoat it. it this would be a, a real blow to Alberta. Um, when yeah. we look at future pipeline capacity, certainly increases the importance of getting uh, the Trans Mountain Project finish, getting Line 3 across the finish line as well. But is, is, is that going to fall short? Are those two projects enough to, to address our future capacity needs? Well, I think this is a point I'd like your listeners to understand. I mean, KXL had the potential to move between 800 to over a million barrels a day of incremental oil, and it would do so at the most, most efficiently. So although TMX is an alternative, mm-hmm. you still have to put the oil once you get to Burnaby on a tanker and take it to the Gulf Coast. That's going to be more costly. <laughs> so although Line 3 and TMX may uh, you know, provide 
capacity that will approach what KXL could have done. I, uh, certainly in the case of TMX, it's not going to have the same directness. Now, it does provide the advantage of some alternative market, but I think that's going to be a challenge to develop over time. So it is a real economic setback to Alberta and to Canada because you've really lost the most efficient way of getting um, a substantial amount of Alberta's oil sands growth to its most logical market at the lowest cost. So it's, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, as for TC Energy, and I mean, maybe this goes back to uh, decisions that were made around Energy East and, and whether one was, was given priority over the other. If KXL is off the table, and, and certainly from what we're hearing, that if this is indeed a no from, from the new president, that this would be a project they'd walk away from, do they go back to Energy East, or does it open up the door for any other kind of, of pipeline projects? What, what's your sense of where either TC Energy or I guess the market itself might be at on this question? Well, so I think one of the great things that we'll have to look at over the next four years is actually how much does world oil demand actually decline as we come out of COVID and as various governments led by the Biden administration tried to do something more substantial on climate change. My own view is that it is a more open question that we're going to see massive reductions in uh, petroleum demand over the next four years. Um, And, uh, you know, although I I think it's clear that this project, KXL, is not going to move forward as long as Biden is president, is there still a possibility post-Biden that this project could be revived? Possibly. Um, As for reviving Energy East, I think the challenge there is that until TMX is, has been completed and put into operations, and like you also mentioned, Line 3 on Enbridge, um, I think it's unlikely that Energy East will be revived in the short run. That, that's my own personal view. It is interesting, too, maybe slightly ironic at some level, and it wasn't unique to Trump, but certainly under Trump, under previous presidents, the United States very much pursued a policy of low oil prices, low commodity prices, and uh, obviously that that's in part hurt Canada. Do you see the potential, then, if, if Joe Biden is going to take a more aggressive approach in, in climate policy, that yes. we might actually see uh, energy prices rise as a result of that? Well... <clears throat> I think the biggest question that Joe Biden has to preside over is, you know, how aggressive do you get on climate policy to actually force uh, change in actual petroleum consumption? And I think that's going to be uh, a challenge for him to uh, entirely effect in the short run. Like, I think most of his focus is going to be to get the United States in terms of the electric generation sector uh, as far as it can to be decarbonized. Now, that has great impact on natural gas consumption. As far as oil is concerned, uh, as you know, Canada is trying to still is still committed to something known as the clean fuel standard, which is to get our Canadian refineries to reduce their oil consumption and replace it with substitutes like biofuels, electric cars, carbon capture and storage as a supplement to the use of of petroleum. All of those things over time will reduce oil demand. All of them are very expensive alternatives. And so there's always feedback loops on all of this as to how much consumers are going to be prepared to accept these higher costs as they still have to meet their basic needs for space heating, mobility, petrochemicals. So, Rob, I think uh, I don't expect over the next four years for there to be dramatic changes in current levels of petroleum demand. Um, but over time, it's really does the electorates of you know Western democracies, how committed are they to impose on themselves the cost to radically reduce those uh that consumption of petroleum. I I am skeptical that will actually happen. And that's why, you know, the Alberta resource may still actually be able to increase its overall output if all it has to rely on for incremental expansion uh, to takeaway capacity is 
is TMX and Line 3 and, and, and more rail cars. So I think this is still something that we'll be talking about over the next four years and beyond. Yeah, I suspect you're right. Look forward to future conversations and all of this, Dennis. Thanks so much for making some time for us here Thank today. Thank you really uh, for this. having me on. I appreciate it. All right, take care. That's uh, Dennis Bye-bye. McConaughey. You can uh, find him at his website, uh, Dialogues on Canadian Energy, D-O-C-E dot C-A. Uh, his most recent book is uh, mentioned, Breakdown, the Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. And uh, yeah, he was there seeing all of this firsthand as an executive with uh, with TC Energy. We've got to take a break here. 974-8255 is our number, 974-TALK, and we'll get to your calls, your texts when we come back. Stay with us. Now, here in Alberta, for example, we've seen some progress in recent weeks uh, with regard to our overall COVID situation. Numbers have come down in terms of the daily case count, the positivity rate, number of hospitalizations. Things have been trending in the right direction. And we do have hope on the horizon with more widespread vaccination a little bit down the road. What about between now and then? What are the challenges we're expecting to face as it pertains to some of these worrisome variants? We've seen what's happened in the UK, in Ireland, where this uh, beast, as they're calling it, the B117 uh, variant seems to have taken root. Even here in Canada, we've, we've had a few of these cases detected. There's some concern of Windsor, Ontario, maybe, that that might attest to why uh, their case numbers are rising rapidly. And it's not just this UK variant. Uh, there's one out of South Africa we're worried about, one out of Brazil now that we're worried about, that seem to be uh, more easily transmissible. And of course, even the bigger concern, are we seeing enough change in the virus that it could pose a threat to either naturally acquired immunity, i.e. reinfections, or to get around a vaccine? So this is something that that experts are watching very, very closely. And we're at a a pivotal moment here. Uh, Joining us to talk more about uh, some of what we know, what we hope to know, and and what the challenges are going forward. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba, also Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. Dr. Kinderchuk, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about um, you know what's what's been happening with this virus because there's a perception that it was kind of quiet for eight or nine months and then all of a sudden we, we started to see these problematic variants arise. But I mean, obviously the virus is constantly mutating. What do we know for sure at this point? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting. So uh, last week we had a, a big WHO consult meeting with uh, you know over 1,700 uh, you know experts from around the uh, the globe talking about exactly this subject. Where we are right now is is certainly you know the, the virus has been uh, you know mutating and changing throughout the pandemic. We've we've certainly seen different variants that have uh, that have cropped up. Um, but what we've seen the you know the past few months has been a couple of very distinct variants that that have shown up independently, but have basically kind of gotten to the same solution um, all on their own. Kind of like the you know the concept of you know how did a, a butterfly and a bird uh, you know uh, you know eventually evolve the the ability to to use flight as a mechanism? They both evolve wings through very distinct mechanisms, but they got to that that final. Uh, Final solution through through the same mechanisms, so we're, we're kind of seeing that right now. And you know, certainly, I think we have a lot of questions as to, to why this is happening. Um, you know, one one of the theories has been this is a virus that isn't necessarily something that uh, that is used to transmitting in humans. It, it's only happened in the last year, and is this you know kind of the the evolution of it becoming more of a human centric virus? We we don't know, but we're certainly trying to figure out what what is going on and, and trying to do this in a very short period of time to, to understand what what this means for for us moving forward. Yeah, we're trying to do a lot of things, obviously, all at the same time. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, all of the testing we're doing just to de- detect the virus in the first place, and we've got vaccinations that we're worried about. Uh, now to throw on top of all of that, to do this kind of genetic sequencing, to try to do this this surveillance, looking for variants, that adds another layer to, to everything we're trying to do, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does, and I think we have to keep in mind that, to be, to be fair, sequencing has been going on behind the scenes throughout, throughout the entire pandemic. So when we, when we think about this idea of variants, I mean, we, I think as, as scientists, we have to communicate better that, you know, variants are something we're seeing all the time, 
It's just that these three that we've seen lately are more concerning than some of the, the, the previous variants that we've seen. So, you know, it, it isn't so much that, oh, the variants have just appeared and the virus is now mutating. No, it's been mutating the entire time, but those mutations haven't given the, the virus any advantage up to this point. So now we have to figure out what is the advantage and, and what is our, you know, countermeasure to that, that, that advantage. Yeah. Well, that's the tricky thing. I mean, let's take this B117 variation, the one that uh, first uh, we noticed in, in the UK. There seems to be pretty conclusive evidence that it is more transmissible. But in terms of why that is, either the, the spike protein or viral load or something else, in terms of why it's more transmissible, is, is that still a bit of a mystery? It is. You know, I think we're getting some different context, right, or some additional context to this. So certainly we, we have a better idea now that the mutations, at least when you look at them on kind of the blueprint of the protein, what you can do is kind of predict what those mutations mean. And in fact, you know, we, there are some very smart people that are able to do predictions and say, well, this looks like it. It allows the virus to attach to our cells better than the previous circulating strains. So that gives us a bit of an indication that, oh, this is likely a distinct physical advantage for the virus. The part that we don't know yet that is you know, what, what does this mean in regards to somebody that's sick? Do they carry more virus and then are able to expel more virus when, when they're sick or when, you know, when they're coughing or sneezing or, or breathing? And does that lead to inc increased transmissibility? Um, the, the unfortunate aspect is we can't, you know, within a, a couple of days, plug all of this into, you know, an algorithm and, and get all of our answers. We, we have to go through things like getting the virus, doing the animal experiments, doing the cell culture experiments. And I think we're doing a, a pretty good job. We'll have some answers within a couple of weeks. Um, but there's always going to be that time lag, unfortunately. You know, and it's been a little eerie, I, I think, because some of what we've been hearing from health officials in Canada seems reminiscent of what we were hearing in early <laughs> March, that yes, we've found some of these cases, they're mostly travel related, nothing to be too concerned about at this point. But maybe we didn't really know what was going on at the time. Do we really know what's going on right now? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I always live in a world of perpetual concern because I work on emerging yes. <laughs> viruses. So, you know, I think there's that aspect that, you know, I, I'm always thinking ahead to, okay, what, what is the, the potential worst case scenario? I, I think for us, what we have to keep in mind is that, that the virus hasn't gained superpowers. So all mm -hmm. the same laws of, of uh, containment still apply. So masking, distancing, hygiene, not being in closed spaces, all those things that we're tired of hearing about still apply to, to reducing transmission. But the caveat is they now become far more crucial because the fact is you have people that seem to be able to spread the virus further when they are sick. Well, now that means that any cracks that are in the system you have extra virus that's able to move into into the population. And of course, it's difficult with this virus because not everybody is showing symptoms. And in fact, a, a very few people become symptomatic. So you can have the virus transmitting in the background through a community prior to actually getting any sort of a, an alarm saying, oh, by the way, here it is. And, and that's the part that I think we're, we're having trouble dealing with. We're getting better. The, the diagnostic assays are being updated. But it's all, again, it's always a time lag, unfortunately. Uh, this this Brazil uh, variant in particular, though, and I know there's the concern, and even with the South African variant, um, you know, are, is is this something that could pose a problem for vaccines? Is this something that could pose a problem for those who might have some immunity from a previous infection? But, um, you know, in the city of Manaus in, in Brazil, for example, there was maybe some thought or expectation that given how hard hit that city was, that yeah. there should be some degree of, of herd immunity, and that, that city's getting slammed yet again. So what about that, that threat of, of reinfection or, or even problems for a vaccine? Yeah, this is where, you know, we're, we're really struggling to, to come up with some answers as, as quickly as possible. And certainly both both Brazil and, uh, you know, the, the P1 variant and the 501V2 that first emerged in South Africa, they're kind of, again, they've, they've evolved the same or similar mechanisms uh, to, to, you know, independent or, or independently uh, from one another to get to, to the same conclusion. Um, we, we don't quite know what this means for antibody binding and recognition by our immune system. There certainly is data to suggest that maybe this is a mechanism to subvert our immune response. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of people in, you know, vaccine, uh, the vaccinology side of things that are quite optimistic that the vaccines will still be able to recognize these, uh, these variants or at least give some immunity. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're still 
we're still trying to figure out what that looks like. Certainly, the mRNA vaccines can be updated very quickly, um, but but we want to address this as as quickly as possible and also provide information and context to the public without also kind of increasing that fear factor. We we have some unknowns here, um, but but certainly uh, I think again we go back to the fact. This is not a virus that now, you know, is able to, you know, permeate walls and permeate windows. Same laws in terms of transmission still apply. If we want to reduce transmission, we know what to do. We just have to do a better job of doing it. So does this give, I mean, I I think there's already a sense of urgency when it comes to the vaccinations, given everything we've been dealing with over the last year. But maybe this, this adds a little bit more impetus. I certainly think so. I think when we, you know, think about this idea of trying to reduce transmission, you know, we're still kind of, you know, lingering with that question about what vaccines mean, particularly the mRNA vaccines in regards to transmission, you know, does a great job at reducing severe disease. We don't know the second question of being able to, to reduce transmission, but if we're able to reduce severe disease and get people immune in a population and, and spread that broadly, the likelihood is that with a uh, you know a smaller disease window or lesser symptoms, you reduce transmission, as we've seen with other diseases, and that ergo would lead to to slower transmission in the community. So, vac- vaccines and, and vaccinations are still critical, and surely we we need to do a better job in in getting them out to the public. We'll leave it there. Always appreciate the in, uh, insights. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today, Jason. Really appreciate Great. it. Thank, thanks and take care. All right, you as well. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk at the University of Manitoba, Assistant Professor of Viral Pathogenesis, also Canada Research Chair in that area as well. So some insight from him on you know what experts are, are trying to still understand what we do more or less understand at this point and, and where there's some concern. So there is that epidemiological question. Is this something that's going to be a problem for us in a month or two? There's some uh, estimates that in the United States, maybe by March, this uh, UK variant could make up a a majority of COVID cases, and uh, that could be problematic for a country that's been pretty hard hit by this virus. Are we prepared? I don't know. I I don't feel confident that we are. Uh, You know, we've done a pretty lousy job when it comes to uh, screening travelers or ensuring that travelers are quarantined. And already we've seen both the UK variant, the South African variants have been detected here. Do we know to what extent they might be circulated in the community? I, I don't know if we have a good sense of that at this point. And, and maybe you only realize that when the, the cat's out of the bag. So it, it is worrisome. Look, as I said earlier, I mean, Alberta's made some impressive progress in recent weeks, and hopefully we can keep that up. I know we're at the point of talking about loosening some restrictions even further, something the Premier commented on today. But uh, this could throw a wrench into a lot of those plans. Welcome back. Uh, Certainly one of the big challenges uh, for the incoming U.S. president is uh, how to deal with Russia, how to deal with uh, Vladimir Putin. And it's it's certainly not just an American issue. I I think Canada is very much in the same boat. And maybe there's an opportunity uh, to to have more of a united front then in, in dealing with Russia. Uh, so as we ponder what might change, uh, once a new president is sworn in later this week, we've obviously got some disturbing events from the weekend, I think, that, that highlight all of this. Uh, opposition leader uh, Alexei Navalny, uh, the Russian opposition leader who was uh, poisoned and nearly died, uh, certainly I think uh, fingers point toward the Kremlin for responsibility there. He has very courageously returned to Russia and probably knowing what would happen, uh, that he was taken into custody uh, has been remanded in custody for 30 days, has apparently been taken to a uh, rather notorious prison in Russia. Uh, so very much uh, a concerning situation there. Now, I guess to the government's credit, uh, we uh, condemned the actions of the Russian government, called for the release of Alexei Navalny. Uh, so we've taken a principled stand, but you know, to what extent that's going to influence uh, the Russian president is another question. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about the situation with uh, Mr. Navalny and uh, what it speaks to in terms of broader concerns with Russia. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Marcus Kolga, who's a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, a director of uh, their DisinfoWatch project, disinfowatch.org. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, certainly some remarkable scenes uh, yesterday and, you know, incredibly courageous uh, of Mr. Navalny to return, knowing what he was likely to face. But what did you make of uh, what you saw and, and what ended up happening? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a moment to see someone who uh, just barely survived a poisoning just, uh, you know, five months ago, 
Um, clearly, you know, it's the, the, the Russian authorities are, are, are behind it. So there's a, you know, fairly in-depth investigation that was, uh, released in, in December that CNN was involved in with, along with Bell and Cat, that, that, you know, they, they concluded that, uh, a rare uh, nerve agent was placed in Alexei Navalny's, uh, underwear. Uh, during a an election style campaign stop in in Siberia in, in August, um, you know he he barely survived that. Um, you know it was thanks to a few chance incidents that a you know a, the 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 pilot of the aircraft that he was on decided to make an emergency landing, that the ambulance on the ground uh, reacted so quickly and the doctors reacted quickly enough. Uh, and of course, um, you know, we know that it was a rare, uh, government controlled nerve agent because, you know, you've had three, uh, independent government, uh, researchers look into this in Germany, Sweden, and, and France. Uh, they've, they've all concluded that this was Novichok, this Russian agent, uh, nerve agent. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, the bravery of this man, uh, to return to fight for his people, to fight against the corruption of this regime, to fight for democracy. It's, it was really moving. Um, but terrifying at the same time, because uh, I think, you know, what he's going to have to face over the coming months um, is, um, is, is just potentially uh, terrifying. Uh, you, know, you mentioned that he was in, delivered into a, a, a prison, uh, the Matroskaya Tishnia prison, where Sergei Magnitsky, another anti-corruption crusader, was killed in 2008. It's a notorious prison. He may be there for another three and a half years, I mean, perhaps longer, uh, perhaps not. Um, but uh, it will be interesting to see how Putin now reacts with all of this international pressure. I think he's facing some serious domestic pressure as well um, to see if he releases uh, Navalny after the 30 days or whether he'll remain in prison or perhaps he has other plans. What is it about Putin? Is it just is it, is it insecurity or is is he more vulnerable than he lets on? Why is he so threatened by Alexei Navalny? Well, um, I mean, he's not. I mean, he's terrified by what uh, Alexei Navalny represents. Uh, look, uh, Vladimir Putin has been in power in Russia since 2000. Um, there is a rather high body count when it comes to opposition leaders. You know, Boris Nemtsov shot. Uh, just outside of the Kremlin in 2015. Uh, Vladimir Karamurza, another opposition leader, poisoned twice within a hair of his life. Uh, other uh, whistleblowers dead from poisoning po- uh, by radioactive polonium shot. Um, you know, the, the crimes are mounting. Um, the theft of his regime is unlike anything we've seen in modern times. Uh, this is the, KG- the old KGB that's being brought to power, and they have robbed Russia, its government, and its people blind. Vladimir Putin knows that um, should there be uh, a reckoning, that he's going to be in real trouble. And uh, Boris Nemtsov, who, who was a friend of mine, he used to say after 2012, that was his... Uh, Vladimir Putin's last opportunity during those presidential elections to leave democratically. Um, he didn't do so. And, and Boris used to tell me the only way that Vladimir Putin is exiting is feet first at this point. Um, and things only get worse. You know, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin just extended his his term potentially to 2036. He'll be 82 years old at that point <laughs> if he were to leave power. So, um, you know, Alexei Navalny represents hope, democracy and in a real you know, bright light for the future of Russia, especially for its youth who have only known Vladimir Putin and have not known, have you know, barely been able to travel. They, they haven't seen the same sort of freedoms as their neighbors in, in Europe. And, uh, and I think there's a real desire right now among younger Russians, you know, under 50, uh, to, to get that sort of European Western-style freedom and uh, transparency that they're longing for. In terms of Canada's response, and I know we've we've talked about China before, and I mean we, mm-hmm. we seem a little bit timid on that front, but, but um, are we at least prepared to show a little more backbone when it comes to Russia and Putin in particular? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, you know, I think politically, domestically, I, we don't have any uh, any interest really in 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 Russia. Um, you know, we 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 sell less goods and services to Russia than we do to Botswana or Bangladesh. Uh, so, you know, the 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 excuse of you know we don't want to interrupt bilateral trade it's, that's a flimsy one because it's, it's just yeah. not there. Um, 
so domestically, I don't really see a, an obstacle to being a bit tougher. And certainly there seems to be a growing appetite internationally. You know, I think the, the chorus was quite strong when it comes to, you know, Dominic Robb, the, the UK foreign minister, uh, Mike Pompeo. He may be outgoing, but the incoming Biden administration was also very strongly condemning this this arrest. And the European Union has, has condemned it. All of the, all of those countries, including Canada, we have um, we have good sanctions legislation, the Magnitsky sanctions, as you, as you mentioned earlier. These are this is a, a piece of legislation that allows us to place sanctions on individuals in a in a government who uh, abuse human rights. And you know, uh, Navalny's people just uh, a couple of hours ago put out publicly a list of of about ten to fifteen individuals in the Putin regime or supporters of it who they're calling on the international community to sanction. And I think that, uh, you know, Canada needs to be taking a serious look at this and talking to our allies uh, and coordinating. You know, adding a few of those names would send a very, very strong message, not only to Putin, but the uh, the people, the individuals, you know, some people call them kleptocrats, the ones that support him. And uh, and if, uh, if Putin is seen to be not able to support some of those people who have been robbing Russia blind over the past uh, 20 years, um, they might start questioning Vladimir Putin and his, his authority and, uh, and might uh, consider looking at uh, supporting uh, Alexei Navalny or a democratic future for Russia. So this is something that we can do is adopt these sanctions and, and, and talk to our allies about uh, doing this in a coordinated fashion. That would send a real strong signal to Vladimir Putin saying that we will not stand for this sort of behavior. I think of the U.S., I mean, you know, there has been in the past anyway, more of a bipartisan consensus on this. I think it's got a little politically complicated, uh, shall we say, over the last four years. But did you expect uh, maybe a bit of a reset on this point? Uh, and, and if, you know, if we're, we're prepared to stand with the U.S. in, in confronting yeah. Putin, I mean, is, are we anticipating that kind of an approach from the new president? I would be surprised if he uh, if he were to do anything, but I think all all indications right now now are that uh, that that incoming President Biden is going to take a very strong stand against Vladimir Putin. You know, let's not forget. I mean, there's you know Vladimir Putin does have nuclear weapons, so that's that's certainly a threat. He's dedicated a lot of resources to building new weapons, despite you know claiming to want to to have peace with with NATO. He's really militarizing the North. Uh, he's militarizing his his uh, western borders, uh, militarizing space. Um, but beyond that, he's a he's a pretty weak leader. Um, the fact that he's he had to publicly arrest Alexei Navalny um, is a clear indication of that. So. You know, I, I think that, that Biden will confront him. I think he will try to work with like-minded allies, hopefully Canada included, uh, to uh, to contain him. This uh, this guy's a menace. Uh, he goes around, uh, not to Joseph Biden, of course, but, uh, but uh, Vladimir Putin, he goes around in the neighborhood, uh, you know, attacking his neighbors, threatening his neighbors, destabilizing democracy in the United States. He's tried to do it here as well in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, all, all, what we need to do is contain this guy. And, and we need to support the people who are uh, standing up against him domestically. That, that includes people like Alexei Navalny, uh, like Vladimir Karamorza, um, independent media, that sort of thing. I think we'll see a lot of that with, with, with uh, Joseph Biden. And, uh, you know, I think Canada needs to be, would be offside if it didn't uh, work with him. I think it's in Canada's interest. It's in our national security interest. Uh, to work more closely with him and to and to push back on this behavior. So yeah, I, you know, I I expect that he'll he'll do uh, a pretty good job of it. But and uh, and I'm and I'm hopeful that that the prime minister and his government will uh, will work with him. But again, and, and just in closing, to circle it back to to Alexei Navalny, I mean, yeah. how worried are you that some quote unquote accident might befall him? Uh, how 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 much does Putin think he can push the envelope here? And and should something like that happen? Should Alexei Navalny die in, in custody here? How much of a tipping point is that? You know, it's, it's all a question about how desperate Putin is feeling. Um, you know, we, there were thousands of supporters that, that braved, I think it was like minus 35 degrees yesterday in, in Moscow. 
um, thousands of Navalny's supporters went to the airport that he was supposed to arrive in. I mean, they, and because of this, they actually diverted the flight to a, a, an, an airport that, uh, that's west of, uh, west of Moscow. Um, you know, if you've got thousands coming out to the airport like that, and there's a massive call out now for a, uh, a protest on the 23rd, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that, that Putin is 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 quite uh, quite concerned um now is he concerned enough to you know stage some sort of an accident i think that would make a martyr out of mm-hmm. out of navalny and i think that, that might cause bigger problems for for putin so my expectation would be for a, a longer present uh, prison sentence of of some kind um it's just the options aren't good for putin at this point because navalny is every time putin works against navalny the navalny only gets stronger and gains more supporters all right, we'll leave it there for now, Marcus. So much more is mentioned, disinfowatch.org, and, of course, uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Oh, always a pleasure. Anytime. All right, take care. Uh, that is Marcus Kolga. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, director of the Disinfo Watch program uh, at the Institute. Uh, was also a driving force. Uh, certainly, I should credit him for that in Canada, adopting uh, Magnitsky legislation. I think we just need the backbone to follow through here. Uh, but yes, Joe Biden will be the president uh, as of Wednesday, which means Donald Trump will no longer be. Certainly for the Republican Party and conservatism in the United States, I think there's uh, a debate to be had on where to go from here and, and whether Trumpism is is something to be preserved, uh, to, to carry on with, or, or maybe something to be uh, cast aside. Uh, so that, that's more of, I, I think, an issue for conservatives south of the border. It seems less of an issue here. I think maybe to some extent that that kind of populist slash nationalist streak exists uh, amongst conservatism in Canada, but certainly not to the same extent. I mean, we saw the disastrous showing for the People's Party of Canada in the last election, I think maybe as, as evidence of that. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, and for that matter, even Andrew Scheer before him, they're, they're certainly not at all like Donald Trump, although... I think the liberals would uh, have you believe otherwise, and that may be uh, something that carries over into the next election, whenever that is. With that in mind, Aaron O'Toole putting out a statement uh, over the weekend, uh, getting into details about all of this, uh, the kind of conservative party he believes in, that that he wants the party to be, and, and making it clear that there is no place for the far right in our party. And I think maybe that needs to be said. It was certainly the advice being provided uh, last week in an Ottawa Citizen column uh, from our next guest. Uh, joining us on the line is uh, Andrew McDougall. Uh, he's a uh, former director of communications for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and is uh, director of Trafalgar Strategy uh, based in London. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon or tonight where you are. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, so the, the statement put out by Aaron O'Toole, I mean, it wasn't necessarily in direct response to any one thing in particular. What what do you think prompted him to speak out about this? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I think he will have seen, obviously, the way the Liberals jumped on the latest misstep in his office to fundraise. And that was when his office responded to a request for Mesra Levant of Rebel Online. Uh, for comment on a story they had that the, he then badged up as an exclusive and that kind of kicked off right. a frenzy uh, about why is is he consorting with this outfit who has had kind of several outrageous uh, episodes in the past um, and, and certainly kind of seen as as part of the same uh, milieu as, as the kind of Breitbarts and, and the kind of Steve Bannon crew uh, in the States. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the Liberals... Rob, given their credit, they, they know how to pick on a wound, and mm-hmm. they know that kind of making these allegations, whether they're true or not, um, get currency and gain traction, both in the press and with people. And so Aaron's challenge now is to try to separate out kind of what he stands for, while understanding that there are elements of his voter coalition in Canada that will look sympathetically at Trump. And he needs their votes, but he can't be seen to be courting them in any way. And, and that's the challenge he has. So I think for, for a number of reasons, and, and you know, my, my friend and former colleague Ken Bosenkul also wrote a piece uh, maybe a week or two ago about how he wasn't going to excuse any casual Trumpism 
in any of his acquaintances because he looked at that situation and said that's how down south started the trouble down there by people kind of making excuses for Trump and Trumpism, saying, you know, oh, it's just, you know, people who are angry, uh, they want to stick it to the man, uh, need an outsider to, to kind of shake up the system. And and what Aaron O'Toole has to kind of nip in the bud and grasp is, is harness that that disaffection and discontent that some voters might be feeling and channeling it, it productively into politics and into his party and his movement. And And I think that's what he's looking at trying to do, and it's going to be very 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 tight line to walk it is and look you know and i hear from from people oftentimes who who you know may like donald trump wouldn't necessarily want him as as uh, their leader but i mean there's certain aspects either the you know the willingness to to um you know speak their mind or to be politically incorrect or you know to the perception that you know the leader needs to have some toughness or some backbone and and that's all very nebulous it's not really specific to to policy or any kind of policy approach uh, i don't get the sense that that conservatives in canada are really looking for a, a a push toward that kind of nativist sort of populism that that's really not what conservatives in canada is i mean what what's your sense of whether there's a demand for that kind of policy or political approach well yeah i think the answer is there's very little and i think you're right in that the conservative party itself does not want to kind of go down that route you you noted that Maxine Bernier it kind of hit a dead end in the last election, trying to do the kind of hard version uh, on the nativist side. And I think there's very limited appeal for that. But, you know, one of the things that, that, that's so challenging about politics now is, is what might seem far off and distant now. Uh, you know, if you'd asked a Republican in 2015 where he thought his or her party uh, was going to be in 2020, I bet you they wouldn't have predicted it ended up where it did. And and it's it's not that hard to kind of go down that slippery slope and and and, and get that kind of uh, reaction. And I think, especially if you add Rob, the, the fact that now we're in a very surreal environment with the pandemic, and what the pandemic's exposing is a lot of division, if not outright kind of nativist division, economic division of people who kind of go about their lives somewhat normally, despite what's happening, because they're you know, urban educated professionals working in services that, that haven't been disrupted versus, say, frontline workers, uh, people that have to go out of the house to do a job. And and I think a lot of politicians in Western economies are looking at, at a potential K-shaped recovery, they call it, where, where the kind of better-offs keep doing all right, and, and those who are struggling at the start of it get further behind. And And I think you could see in that kind of scenario people wondering, who is speaking on my behalf, especially when you look at the kind of governing class in Canada and the States, who all inhabit a similar mindset if they don't share a similar politics of being university educated, kind of largely, you know, city focused, globally oriented. And and I think Western politics is really struggling with how to kind of knit those two groups back together. If you're a Democrat or a liberal, you know, you might be looking at some people who are lower down the socioeconomic pole you know, the former working class is kind of your traditional voter base. And I think what you're seeing, interestingly, is Aaron O'Toole now making a play for those voters. You know, if you listen to his speech on Labor Day, it could have been, you know, Ed Broadbent delivering that speech as an NDP leader, this kind of homage to the working man and an honest work for an honest wage. And and I think, you know, it's a fine line between that uh, debate and, and it tipping over into something a bit more angry. And, and Trump might have diagnosed some problems to back it up to the states, but he didn't have any of these solutions. And yeah, I think that's why people yeah. are even angrier than they were. Right. Well, we're certainly seeing that. But I, I think you touched on something. And you go back to 2016 and maybe the surprise that, that Trump had done so well in, in those, you know, the so-called Rust Belt states. That that economic anxiety and a lot of it, as you say, being created by this pandemic. That that, that certainly conservatism, you know, whether it's the Conservative Party of Canada or, or wherever else, but there does need to be that that outreach and that ability to connect with with working class voters, doesn't there? Yeah, there does because I think what you're seeing is is we've seen kind of a massive rise in 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 inequality in the last forty years as globalization's kind of done its business and and i think fixing that and and kind of the public policy you need to kind of smooth that result out now is very difficult to achieve um with global capital flows you know if you look at the kind of 
working class were the first to be hit with kind of industrial uh, jobs going to places like Mexico and China. And now, you know, it's not that far of a stretch for middle class and upper middle class employment to start following the same journey. Um, you know, professional services, you're already seeing this banking in other sectors, even in our hospitals, you know, the people who look at your x-rays might be working in India um, and not in a hospital in Canada. And if you look at things like artificial intelligence and, and automation that are coming, you know, it could be that, that job anxiety and, and, and opportunity anxiety moves up the socioeconomic ladder. And, and these are all kind of horrendously complex questions. And and it's a real opportunity, though, if, if you can grasp that nettle and, and try to kind of figure out how does, in this case, in Aaron O'Toole's case, a modern-day conservative speaks to that world where, you know, we, we made a bet on globalization that worked for some people, didn't work for others. Uh, and, and do we let that split get even wider uh, with technology, um, or, or do we try to do something to address it? You know, do we let the Amazons of the world take over and, and kill the mom-and-pop shops or, or shops on, on your kind of local road in your community that just can't compete with that infrastructure and, and, and that kind of technical ability? And these are very real issues, uh, and hopefully we start discussing those issues instead of the kind of, you know, are the conservatives all evil racist? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is all the more reason for Aaron O'Toole to kind of do what he's done and, and nip this in the bud and say, this is my vision of the party. And while he can't control everybody that votes for his party, he can't control who he wants in the formal party itself. And, and do you think that's that's sufficient? Do you think he's done enough here, or is, is there still more he needs to do? Well, you know, the liberals will always argue that there's more he can do, but I think right. the kind of good statement of principle and, and what, you know, what I would like him to say a bit, a bit more explicitly is we cannot become uh, that party of, of unreason that, that does, isn't tethered to reality. You know, if you look down the states, the, the terrifying thing is the vast majority of Republican voters, 87, 90 percent, according to some polls, think that Trump won that election. And mm-hmm. we just can't have a scenario like that in Canada where, where two groups look at the same set of information and call it different things. Because uh, that makes politics very hard to do, and in fact, it makes it impossible to do. And so, you know, the, the kind of thing that worried me, and maybe this because of the job I had with, with Prime Minister Harper dealing with the media, was this kind of latent hostility to the press that was starting to bubble up. Um, you know, they, they were booing reporters in the 2015 campaign, and, and the kind of cries of fake news that you've seen from the states. And, and we can't, conservatives in Canada cannot be that party that rejects the system and looks to go outside the system. Uh, a, it's a short-term loser in, in kind of electoral prospects, but it's also just a very pernicious road to go down. Once you go down that that road of, of saying 2 plus 2 equals 5 and nobody understands me and I hate the system, that doesn't lead to any productive outcomes. And Aaron O'Toole's challenge is to take that frustration and anger that people might be feeling that their side of the story is not being told or that their views aren't being represented in Ottawa and get them inside the system, working with the system, uh, with his party to fix the system and, and do the thing that Trump didn't do in the States, which is uh, assuage that economic anxiety by, by making policy choices that make things better for those people. All right. Andrew, we'll leave, uh, leave it at that. Appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for the insight on this. Thanks for having me on. All right, take care. Uh, that is uh, Andrew McDougall, Director of Trafalgar Strategy, former Communications Director for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.